Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science, the podcast. This is our weekly review. I'm joined by my colleagues Tom Meehan and Tony D'Onofrio and our producer Kevin Tran uh, here in Gainesville. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world and um, what LPRC and others are doing to help support as well. Um, we understand that, of course, COVID-19, we're all in the midst of this. And um, here we go. It's been uh, months now. Uh, our checking of uh, with the infectious disease people, there are at least close to 700 um, unique compounds uh, in, in development, uh, probably about 299 different therapeutics um, separate of 204 antiviral therapeutics. And bear in mind, these therapeutics are designed to use either monoclonal antibody generators or uh, they'll take, as you all know, blood plasma from from people that have had COVID-19 and um, and then massage and manipulate a little bit and then uh, use that as a therapeutic in all different forms and ways to uh, boost the immune system and get a good response from people that either have uh, disease or may have it. And so um, it's a therapeutic. It's treating the disease that's already established. And there are um, the antivirals over 200 in testing right now. Several of them look more and more promising every day. And uh, I guess the current administration calls it Operation Warp Speed. And I think a lot of us don't really think about that involves both vaccines and uh, therapeutics, um, not just vaccines. But in one case, um, a team looked at 13,000 uh, therapeutic drugs and molecules that seemed to have some kind of effect, uh, a neutralizing effect on the virus out of 13,000. One that's called LAM002 alpha um, is now in fa- going into phase two trials, and that seemed to be the best of 13,000. And that's just, again, one example of uh, really about 500 little over 500 uh, therapeutics in trial right now, um, or in some phase of testing, 175 vaccines in one phase or another of development, um, including, remember, again, there are normally three phases of trials. Um, Sometimes they're combining in a one, a two, or a two, and three during uh, this critical time across the world. So, but they're trying to always establish, uh, is this safe? Uh, and then do we see some efficacy here? Is there some kind of, uh, is a vaccine uh, emoting some kind of immune response from the patient? And so starting um, with computer simulations and going into mouse models or something uh, along those lines, and then progressing possibly into humans, um, again, looking at safety, and then they'll start doing again, dose ranging. Hey, how much should we give and how often? And so that's where you'll see, well, if we give this much, if we give this much, so this group will get this much in the test. This will get this. And normally the, the test participants or subjects are uh, randomly assigned or selected and then randomly assigned to different test conditions to do that. Um, as they progress, if it looks really promising into phase two, and that's, again, looking at safety and efficacy, 
Um, and now is when you're starting to see even more dose ranging typically. Um, and again, we do all this, this is the same process we use um, in, as experimental criminologists and, and having conducted over 30 of these randomized controlled trials um, in the criminological area, we all know in, in uh, safety and security, that's the same, very same process. And, um, and if it can, it will, it will go wrong or weird. So um, I, I really sympathize with all this, the researchers out there um, as they look at these. Now, uh, we've not uh, used the double blind um, type of a, of a process that you hear so much about in the media. And that just means that the researchers themselves or the data analysts themselves do not know who was treated with the agent and who was not treated with it. Um, in other words, they got the placebo. And the placebo can take different forms, as we all know, we hear the sugar pill, but it could be you know, saline and all types of different substances. Um, in our randomized control trials, it's not really practicable for us to do that. Um, so we, we know, who, you know which buildings get treated and which ones don't or what version of the treatment that the, that the uh, place gets. And by the way, most of our RCTs are, with, um, play, are place-based. We're not treating individuals, of course, um, but we've had some where, where the, uh, the test subjects are humans online particularly, or you all know where we've conducted dozens of, uh, of behavioral intercept studies where we're intercepting either shoppers or um, uh, the associates uh, or of course uh, active criminal offenders. Uh, in that case, we might randomize what they are exposed to and those are now gonna be um, participant-based as opposed to place-based. So just a little bit of insight into what's going on out there and um, in, as the, in the race to protect us, um, either bef uh, keep us from getting the disease or if we do to minimize its effects. And so they look at endpoints like we do as well. And those endpoints are kind of all over the place, but typically they want to see a difference, a clinical or observable difference in patient function after those that received uh, the agent, the, the therapeutic in this case, uh, versus those that don't. And then they want to look at survival. Um, if it's a serious disease or does it progress to that serious disease? Um, what's the survival rate? And this is what you see a lot with um, cancer jugs and other things out there as well. So a lot of very, very innovative, um, computer-based, uh, and now with all the technology, I mentioned 13,000 uh, agents were tested. Um, you imagine that would have taken probably a decade or more to do that in the past. And now they can do that sometimes in just a matter of weeks or, or even days. So, um, you know, that part of it's interesting, but just know across the entire globe that we've got uh, hundreds and hundreds of brilliant um, uh, therapeutics and, and vaccines under development and being tested very rigorously. And even though Warp Speed and other programs across the world are designed to accelerate development and rigorous testing, rigor remains part of that and um, of the process that uh, nobody's gonna deploy anything that isn't safe for most people. And again, because in the case of a vaccine, it's gonna raise our immune systems uh, or our responses in that case, we're gonna, we're gonna experience some side effects. And I know with the Shingrix or shingles that um, most people over age 50 are advised to, to get that. It's normally a two uh, dose series um, and I can tell you personally that in both cases, you know, I felt like I had the flu and I don't know that I've had the flu in 20 years. Uh, in both cases, I knew, I, here it comes. And then sure enough, you got it. 
but that was a, it, it demonstrated a very robust immune response. Um, and so that's uh, normally bodes well, uh, so that now if you are exposed to it, uh, or it, in this case with shingles, I guess, it's evidently already onboarded, um, that it's probably going to be effective to either keep you from getting it or that the, um, the seriousness of the disease is, is minimized. So um, a little bit about uh, coming up here. We've got, a, a, I mentioned before, the all-retailer call uh, Wednesday tomorrow. In this case, we're recording on Tuesday. And um, we, we did get a re robust response from our retailers. There's a lot of interest. So it's a lessons learned call. We're going to dissect what was uh, experienced by the retailers in, in the case of COVID-19 and the same with um, the looting that they experienced and the property destruction, the intimidation and things like that. Uh, and then with them kind of dissect and break down what all was going on, what they did about it, what they were doing to repurpose people and tactics and technologies and uh, function and so on. Um, to address this rapidly evolving and uncertain times in both cases, and sometimes both at the same time, or most of the time. Um, and then what did they readjust and then readjust again? And so I th we think that that kind of lesson learned process will, will be strong and powerful for them. Um, and then what we're going to do is turn around and within two weeks, we will go through the lessons learned there um, with all solution partner call. So all solution partners can be invited to get on and, and listen and ask questions around what we've been hearing from the retailers without attributing to a specific retailer. So we're excited to, to host those two calls and to facilitate them and um, work to get out uh, a lot of lessons learned pretty rapidly here, uh, knowing that again, pathogens, this pathogen may be here for weeks, months, or years, um, but most certainly others will come uh, so let's keep learning and adjusting together as a community at the LPRC. And then the same thing with, uh, with social disorder that goes from peaceful demonstration to something that's very dangerous, destructive, and, and, and uh, very intimidating to people. So um, I'm going to go ahead and talk really quickly about uh, impact, what's coming up at impact. Uh, it's going to be that first week in October. Um, the content is by and large settled. Um, the topics, the speakers, the some cases the topics uh, are already under development now. Uh, I'm sorry, the actual recording and so on is going on. Um, but there is, of course, as you can imagine, retail before, during, and after crisis strikes um, with some very senior, uh, very capable leaders. Um, we've got four of them that are at that vice president level. Um, we won't name them just yet, uh, but we expect it to be a very robust discussion with um, very, you know, some deep dives into sort of the, me the mechanisms that caused and the responses that, that came about. <clears throat> we're going to talk, then we're going to go in with um, uh, two different retail chains uh, about retail protection during periods of civil unrest and really dig into what's going on. We're going to do a lot of deep dives around LPRC Innovate and show some super cool examples using the new uh, virtual reality lab that we've got available. Uh, that's just, it's to me, yeah, maybe I'm easily amused, but it's very exciting to work with this new tool that, that's been developed uh, with the University of Florida's Digital Worlds Institute uh, and our team where we can very rapidly change the look, the size, the shape, uh, and everything, all the components of any given venue, in, in this case, store or parking lot normally, um, 
and then put people in there. We have ambient noise. We have special sounds. We can change the look and feel of everything. We can even put other people in there that they're doing certain things and responding certain ways. So we can up our, um, our ecological validity game. In other words, the realism, uh, because again, there's three components we're trying to do with our research anyway, with the, the physical uh, experience, the social experience, and then of course the self experience. And um, we believe that with virtual reality, we can do all three, um, but we're also comparing and contrasting the virtual experience with the physical experience um, and trying to test and rapidly test options. And so you can see it's sort of the operation warp speed here as well, where now you can uh, come together uh, virtually, you can develop uh, solution options, not just a solution, but how might I deploy it or different ways. Um, and then now more rapidly test those different deployment or dosing options um, uh, that in a safer way, in a distributed way, and so on. So that's kind of what's going on here. Um, we've also got, uh, we're going to update on the over 30 research projects that were uh, that are underway now that are or have already been concluded with the group. Uh, you're going to see uh, some research on the effects of fear of crime on consumer behavior um, uh, that we're going to go through with Malong. Um, some really interesting things we're doing with artificial intelligence and highlight other AI um, efforts by our uh, solution partner members. And um, we want to make sure that we have a special emphasis on all the wonderful things that AI can help, but how to do AI ethically and um, effectively as well. Um, so uh, you're going to see retail offenders in a digital age. So we're going to have our normal discussions there. Uh, Tom, who's on the call now, will be one of our uh, expert speakers in that realm. Uh, we're going to do some deep dives using video into offender decision maker as we expose them to different solutions and options. Uh, so you're going to see some posters of some other research we're doing and so on. So what I want to do um, with no further ado is go over to Tom Meehan and let Tom tell us about uh, some of the things that we need to know about. Tom? Thanks, Reed. So I'm going to be brief today, but I just wanted to recap uh, an incident that occurred recently related to Twitter and some very high profile accounts. I'm not sure uh, how many of the listeners are aware of some of the details, but there was a 17 year old in Florida and two people that put together a very sophisticated attack. And it really was one person who uh, took advantage of some social engineering, you know, and made some phone calls to Twitter, got a hold of a configuration tool uh, and these accounts had the highest level of protection on them. So when you think about two-factor authentication, all of the verifications, they existed. But this really sheds a lot of light on the human effort in hacking. And we talk about it, I think, pretty much in every one of these podcasts that I think when we sit in our, our couches at home watching TV, we see the CSI-type hacking event where someone's sitting in a room with 100 monitors and they're really aggressively attacking the infrastructure that exists in the nation state attacks that exist. But what you normally find is that, that usually more than 80% of cyber events or incidents are related to a human, uh, whether it be a human error or an intentional uh, condition. And with this particular case, uh, what the, after getting the, the tool to get into Twitter, which is sophisticated, um, something that in theory required quite a bit, um, this individual recruited folks, went out and really recruited folks to handle the financial side of it um, and went to some very famous and high level uh, people's accounts and 
kind of when I say this out loud, I think to myself, everybody should have recognized this, but sent a message saying, you know, I'm basically, um, we're going to give back. So you know, give some money here and we'll, we'll double, triple, quadruple that type of money. Um, and the, there is a lot of misinformation and uh, the prosecutors released some documents the other day. Uh, what we know is that this 17 year old had $3 million um, worth of Bitcoin, uh, $3.35 million worth of Bitcoin. Uh, when, when he was uh, taken into custody by the FBI, the FBI did a pretty elaborate case. But what it really leads us to back to is that kind of three schools of thought. One is if it doesn't make sense and it's too easy, it probably isn't, it isn't legitimate. The second is when someone calls portraying as someone else, if they're asking for information that's not normally asked, this, you know, don't give it. This is a real example of social engineering where someone took the time and called. You know, you're talking about high-level operators at Twitter got through and was able to get information to garner access to, you know, high-level accounts, politicians, celebrities with millions and millions of followers and take advantage of that. So, you know, when you get that phone call, regardless of your business, and they're asking interesting questions, do some due diligence, call back. And if the information is sensitive, it should never be given over the phone. And then third is just the other reminders, no matter what safeguard you put in place, there's always a human element that comes into play. I think we sometimes live behind the shadow of, I use two-factor authentication, I use VPN, I'm safe. Um, and then just wrapping it up, the Hartford sent out a really good article about considerations related to COVID-19 and cybersecurity. Um, and, you know, I think there's a couple things on here that we just talked about is, you know, be aware of unsolicited communications from organizations or companies that you have no relationship with. So if you've never heard of the company before, it's obviously something that's there. Um, while this sounds odd when I say it out loud, it happens quite often. Requests for transfers or direct deposit or electronic funds. You know, just, you know, if you're getting that email from your electric company that says your payment didn't go through, they may have very specific accurate information trying to get you to, to go ahead and put your account number in again. That's a that's a, one of the flags and one of the things that have been coming up. Uh, you know, an overwhelming sense of urgency when someone asks you for something. It's immediate and you get that email that this is an emergency or you get that phone call that I need you to respond right away. Um, you know, that should be a red flag for you. Anytime anybody asks you for username, passwords, or personal information, be wary of it. You get a phone call that someone says, who am I speaking with? Well, they call Jews. So be very aware of those things. Uh, these are kind of the old antics of look for links that don't match, but you know, email addresses, don't click on things you don't know. And then this is the one that I think really, it was interesting that I think in the loss prevention while we talk about a lot, but probably a good, good reminder is, independently verify the source of the phone call or the email requesting information is who it is. So if Reed, if Reed Hayes, who texts me, we often text each other random things, whether it be whether, if he texts me and asked me to wire him money, I would call Reed. <laughs> I'd put, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't immediately disregard it, but I would call and verify it. Even if it was a very small amount, if Tony called me and said, Hey, can you do me a favor? I can't get into this. I need your help and ask something that was odd. I would just pick the phone up and call. So that, that goes in the business world too. If, Take that extra 30 seconds. It could really help with a world of hurt. All right, Tony, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. Uh, hello, everyone. So let me start this week with some new uh, Wall Street Journal crime data that was just uh, published. So the Wall Street Journal did an analysis of the top 50 U.S. cities and found that murders were up 24% this year to 3,612. Shooting and gun violence also are, are on the increase. 
but other nonviolent crimes such as robberies are down. So robberies fell 11% in the 41 largest cities that they re, uh, reported on. The top five U.S. cities with the highest percentage increase in murders were Chicago, San Antonio, Phoenix, Philadelphia, and Houston. And the top five cities in terms of total number of murders, and this one actually was a shocker in Chicago being so high. Chicago was number one with 433 murders so far this year, and Philadelphia was number two with almost half at 243, then New York, then Houston, then Los Angeles. So crime is on the rise and murder is one of the indicators. Also interesting this week was the results from Amazon. So Amazon re reported their second quarter results. Net sales were up 80, uh, to 88.9 billion, up 40% for the quarter. Uh, Jeff Bezos called it an another unusual quarter. What was interesting is they're, they're tripling or quadrupling of focusing on online uh, grocery. So online grocery sales tripled this quarter uh, and uh, and they actually focused on increasing their capacity, and they increased their capacity in the quarter to do online grocery 160%. Also interesting for Amazon store sales, primarily at Whole Foods, declined 13%. They continue to spend a lot of money to comport to support their online sales, so they spend over four billion dollars in the quarter in incremental COVID-19 costs. They also invested $9.4 billion in capital expenditures and, and finance leases, which was a 65% increase, primarily on boosting fulfillment and logistics. For the quarter, they added 175,000 new jobs, and they've crossed over now a million people that work at Amazon. So it gives you an idea in terms of what's happening in the online space. In the quarter, they're also uh, putting a continue, as you can see, I've put a lot of focus on innovation. And, and this has really been a historical trend. They spend over $15 billion a year on innovation and, and concept that they've come out with, like Amazon Go, the recent smart shopping guard. And I saw some interesting data on Alexa. And Alexa now has become the number one uh, smart voice platform. And according to the latest voice platform, Impact, Ratings report, they are number one. And even that, in terms of across a whole bunch of factors, their rating was 110.2, followed by Google and 97, and Apple at 38. So Amazon, a lot of focus on innovation, and, and some of that innovation is reflected in the, in the results. Switching gears, let me talk about the, the top five most CCTV surveilled, surveilled cities in the world. So. These are the cities with the most CCTV cameras per 1,000 inhabitants in 2020. Uh, not surprising, but I guess it would be surprising. 11 out of the 12 that were analyzed are in China. There was only one in the Western world. So number one is actually a city called Taiwan, which is uh, south, south of Beijing. It has 119 cameras for 1,000 people. Number two was Wuxi, which is west of Shanghai, with uh, 92 cameras for 1,000 people. And number three was, I guess I knew, but it was a surprise reminder, is London. London is the number three most surveilled city in the world. They have 67 cameras per 1,000 people. 
uh, keeping the team of top five going, uh, who are the top five countries in COVID-19 deaths per 100,000 in population? UK is number one with 68. Chile is number two with 45. US is number three with 43. Peru is number four with 41. And Brazil is number five with uh, 38. So those are the top countries in terms of uh, deaths per 100,000 in population. And let me close with some data in terms of who's opening and closing stores. This is, again, uh, analysis that just came out from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so they looked at it by apparel. So what's interesting is even during the pandemic, there are chains opening stores. So we had a lot of news in terms of all the closures. So, for example, as of 2 July 30 in apparel, 1,144 stores were closed, but 403 were open. Uh, discounts, 31 closed. 1,575 were open. Health and Beauty, 985, 989 closed. 192 open. Home Goods, 1,458 1, closed. 157 open. Department Store, 302 closed. 88 open. Food and Grocery. 84 closed, 421 open, and then other 974 closed and 80 open. For a total of, uh, so far, 5,354 closed, 3,351 open. The biggest chains that are opening stores right now are Burlington, uh, Skechers, Ross, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, Sephora, Tractor Supply, Aldi, Casey, and Amazon, even Amazon is planning to, has opened 20 stores so far. So those are the, uh, uh, I wanted to close on a positive note. So there are closures going on, but there are also retailers that are actually opening stores. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Reed. Yes, we all really uh, are thankful for your ending on high notes there, Tony, each week and thank you. And thank you, Tom, again, for so many good insights. Um, and we know the social engineering or uh, sort of telefishing, if you will, is uh, ever present. And um, it, it is just incredible. Um, it, it, but we understand, you know, we're trusting humans by nature. And uh, we can understand how um, sometimes easy it is to fall for somebody that's just very convincing. Um, and they only have to get one person to fall for a, an email or a call sometimes to do incredible, incredible damage. Um, so I want to thank everybody for joining us today on Crime Science, the podcast. And um, please, you know, distance, uh, aggressive, frequent hand washing, um, mask as much as possible when you're close to people so that each other can uh, reduce the amount of viral uh, infection that we might dose out there. Um, and uh, let's all stay safe. We're always here. Please reach out to us at lpresearch.org or operations at lpresearch.org. Uh, so signing off from Gainesville uh, on behalf of Tony, Tom, and Kevin, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.